Well, praise the Lord. You can praise Him sitting in your seat just as well as anywhere else. Amen? Like, like Robin always says, if you're still standing, you're rebellious. That's a, jo- that's a joke. All right, everybody, we've got some, uh, a couple of things to talk about. Got a few announcements. Um, have a few really important things that I need to communicate to y'all. We have, uh, you know, Chris, Chris talked to us a little bit a few weeks ago about transition. And we want y'all to know that we are really in the thick of transition right now. Um, a couple of real important dates that I want to make you aware of. Um, the last Sunday that we will have the, uh, our, our, what we consider the Queen City Church offices across the street, our last day in that building is the last day of May. Okay, So we are in the middle of transitioning out of those buildings into our new facility at 711 Presley Road. And so, um, actually, we've got some slides I wanted to show you all this morning, if those are ready to go. So this is irrefutable evidence that renovation has begun. For those of yeah, I mean, once you have the porta potty, you have everything just about. So... Um, we can just fly through those slides, just give folks a little, yeah, that's another important aspect. Those, we, we pulled the, well, I didn't, neither Robert, Robin or I pulled those commodes out, somebody else did, but um, they are out of the building and we are on our way to getting new restrooms for the church. So go ahead and flip through those. This is one side of the building, we've got a nice lawn area with trees and place for the kids to play, so... How many of y'all not seen this building before? Raise your hand if you've not seen this. this is, oh, wow. Come on. This, all right. So this is the front entrance way. That's a big fan that we've got coming, pulling all the dust. That wall right there is no longer there. This is another meeting room that we have in the building. What you're seeing now is all the offices. Okay. That's where the bathroom was. Okay. And the new bathroom is going to be going there. So... That's that's another transition there. Transition. Yeah, another. This is all transition, right? <laughs> so what you're seeing is all the office and kids spaces. You're not going to see any pictures of of what I'm calling the sanctuary. We don't have any uh, pictures of that quite yet. But there's Mark Brittner. He's in charge. He's the man running the show for us over there. We're in good hands with Mark. If you see him, pat him on the back. More construction debris. That's the other side of the building. So we got trees and lawn area on both sides of the building. It's kind of cool. 711 Presley Road. So, okay, so here are just a few things I need you to know. Last Sunday in our office across the street will be May 29th, all right? Um, This coming Saturday, May 21st, is going to be our big moving day. We're going to get all the stuff out of that building and take it over to the new building. So if you would, we need help to get all the couches and all the stuff out of that building. And Donna and I are looking for volunteers. If you would be interested in helping us move on Saturday, next Saturday, please see me or Donna afterwards and let us know that you want to be there. We're going to meet at 9.30 to start moving stuff out. On Tuesday of this week, Donna's going to start packing up all of the loose stuff in boxes. If, if anybody has some free time on Tuesday of this week to help Donna pack up, that's also starting at 9.30. Um, I know I got a lot of announcements. I'm really sorry. Okay, I want to let you know about this. Because of the transition, we are, we're, we're going to, uh, we're calling it our summer service times. We have to keep the kids in the meeting for the whole church meeting because we will no longer have uh, a place for the kids starting in June. So because of that, we need to kind of shorten our service times because, you know, the kids are going to be in here the whole time with us. So so what we're going to do is our normal start time is going to be at 1030 and we will close the service out at 1130. So we will continue meeting here at the Visualite till the building is completed, but we're only going to meet for 60 minutes. Sound good to everybody? Everybody with me? Okay. All right. Okay. A couple more things. So, um, 
Queen City Church men. This Wednesday, there's a men's meeting, but we're not going to be meeting here. We're going to be meeting at the new building. We're going to have a cookout. We're going to grill cheeseburgers out on the front lawn, give you guys just a lay of the land. So all Queen City men at 730 at 711 Presley Road this coming Wednesday. And my final announcement is Queen City Church Young Adults Group. That is college and career age folks. Um, I guess I guess if you're still in college and you're 45, you can go to this group. But otherwise, if you're in your 40s, yeah, for prayer, yeah. So um, Abby is meeting with the young adults at on Thursday, May 19th, in the Queen City Church buildings across the street. So I know I have given you guys a lot, but that's it. Thank you, Andy. Basically, we're moving all the equipment out this week because the next weekend's Memorial Day, and we figured it would be a lot harder to to get help. But we'll the kids will still meet in there the next two Sundays. Is that correct, Donna? So, okie doke. Do we have any more lights in here? I wonder. Is this going to be it right now? That's it. Okay. Well, thank you. All right. It's exciting. Anybody excited? Transition. Works on your excitement sometimes, though. <laughs> when he showed those torn-up rooms and said, those are rooms in transitions, <laughs> I thought, okay, yeah, I felt like that before. So, it's very cool, though. Mark's doing a great job. Let's give it up for Mark Brettner. He's sitting right back there. <laughs> we had a real exciting Friday afternoon. We are this building's 40,000 square feet, and we're getting 12,000 of it. So we're actually sharing it with the owner. And uh, to double the size of the bathrooms, we have to jackhammer the floor, and we've got a couple of really good guys over there working, but one of them jackhammered a water line. So we had to get the city to come in there and turn the water off for the whole building. So it's pretty, that's called transition. <laughs> Transition means you have no idea what's coming. Just be ready. So that was very, very cool. Okay. I am um, going to preach the same message this week I preached last week. Nobody's happy about that at all, are they? <laughs> with certain with certain exceptions. And um, I'll tell you why. I believe there is... A concept or a principle here uh, that's so important. Um, what we talked about last week was the 23rd Psalm. It's like we're going through um, old familiar Old Testament Bible territory. And sometimes what happens when things are very familiar to us, we don't really get the import of what's in there. And uh, so let's do this. Let's read together Psalm 23. Why don't you stand up and I like to reinforce the word. Let's ask the Lord to, when we read this, let's ask him to help us read it like it's the first time we've ever read it. Wouldn't that be awesome? So Lord, we do. We ask that like we could see this with fresh eyes. And hear it with fresh ears and fresh hearts. So here we go. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's go to this next slide. Let, let's go ahead and read this. I call this Our Declarations. This is basically what Psalm 23 is promising. 
I've summed it up this way. Actually, I found this online with a few alterations, so this is not completely original to me, but nevertheless, this is very important. I want us to say this. God is guiding us in His ways. God comforts us when we're exhausted. God provides security for us even in difficult and dangerous times. God causes us to find security in Him during these difficult times. God graciously provides for our needs in abundance, not just enough to barely get by with. God relates to us as an intimate friend living together in His house as part of His family. Even now, we dwell in the presence of God. Okay, that's good. You should grab a seat. going to run down each verse again, make some more comments, and then I want to tie this up together for us to get, I think, the full impact of what's going on here with David, who wrote the psalm, and uh, the situation in which he wrote it. So the first verse, of course, you know, so well known, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The verb tense there. I shall not want, really should be read, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Now one of the things we talked about last week is if you don't understand that there will be times when your life and your experience will contradict the promises of the Bible, you're in for a pretty big surprise. And one of the temptations is to interpret God through your experiences instead of looking at your experiences through what you know the Bible says that God's like because there's, there's going to be a gap. There's going to be a gap. You said, David in this situation, and I'll show you a little bit clearly in a minute what it was like, he was in the midst of tremendous lack when he wrote this song. See, the Psalms aren't scripture to David, they're songs, songs he wrote. And so while David was in a pretty difficult situation, here's what he says about the Lord, when it was not apparent in his experience at this time at all. Actually, I want to read that experience. Let me show you where where David is when he writes this. Because really, I thought it I thought it would be maybe more effective at the end, but no, I think it's David had a number of children. His third son, his name was Absalom, and if you've read much about David's life, he lived in a highly dysfunctional family much like every family I'm pretty much familiar with. But his was particularly dysfunctional. Um, I'm not going to get into all the details, but at a given point, his third son, Absalom, would do this. He would rise early and stand beside the city gate whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for decision, Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land and everyone has any suitor cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was whenever anyone came near to bow down to Absalom, he would put out his hand, take him, and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel, basically from David. So that's one of David's sons. Then at a given point, Absalom told his father, I'm going to go to Hebron. 
I have certain business to conduct. And so he went to another city from Jerusalem. It was called Hebron. And as he left, he sent spies throughout all of Israel. And he said to them, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you, say, you shall say Absalom reigns in Hebron. And so Absalom basically stole the hearts of Israel from his father David, proclaimed himself king. And then we read here, this is all in 2 Samuel 15. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us. Strike our city with the edge of the sword. So David fled for his life. So, in the midst of probably the most serious betrayal David ever experienced, coming from one of his own children, who wants to kill him, he leaves Jerusalem with a handful of soldiers and and close allies and associates. Can you imagine, you know, how David would feel, the heartbreak? Can you imagine what it would be like for a king who was used to having anything he wanted, whenever he wanted, to suddenly be on the run with a bunch of his soldiers, not knowing if he was going to live or die, not knowing what his son was going to do. All he knew, he was in danger. He didn't know where to go. He didn't know how he was going to live. He didn't have anything with him to live from. So what does he do? He starts singing. What's he saying? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And that's the context of the 23rd Psalm. I like that. See, David was a man of war. Probably not such a great thing. But if you understand you have to be men and women of war as well, it makes more sense. Because you are either going to prevail in life through how well you know the Lord or life's going to chew you up and spit you out and you're going to be the next victim. That's not good news, is it? No, the good news is the Lord's your shepherd. You lack nothing. Why would you say you lack nothing when you lack everything? Because saying you lack everything doesn't help that change at all. It only reinforces your condition. Complaining about what you don't have, well, here's what complaining is to me. Complaining is like slamming your thumb in the car door, and a complaint is like re-slamming it. It doesn't help. Does everybody understand complaining doesn't help? What does complaining do? Complaining enlarges your condition. Inordinately. And so one of the basic concepts of Christianity is you overcome by the word of your testimony. You overcome by the word of your testimony. And that means if you have to overcome, that means there's something that you're going to have to come over. And like Randall said several weeks ago, many of the things we see as barriers are simply steps into the next dimension that we have to climb, that we have to go over, that we have to ascend. I've thought about this. A friend of mine's sick here lately, and he's, he's in the middle of getting an operation, and... The Lord keeps giving me these psalms. And then I noticed they were psalms of ascent. And the psalms of ascent, I think there are 14 of them in the Old Testament, are psalms the priest would sing as they ascended Mount Zion into the presence of the Lord. And one of those psalms, and I I might read it later, but it says, Behold, bless you the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord. And the image there is you're standing in the house of the Lord, meaning you're right related to who God is, 
but you're in a nighttime season where the problem with being in the dark is you can't see. Overstatement, oversimplification. But the idea is to ascend into these places, you sometimes have to go through episodes and situations where you feel like you're descending. Because it's in the darkness, oftentimes in times of darkness or difficulty, is where you actually determine the validity of what you believe. A friend of mine told me one time, he said, um, I thought I was a victorious Christian until it dawned on me after something that happened here. I had just never been tempted before. And what that means is everybody's faith works at a high level when they don't need faith. It's called delusion. (laughs) That's really good, Robin. Okay. So David is in tremendous want. And what does he say? He says, well, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Well, your friends are going to say you're crazy. The devil's going to say you're crazy. And the Lord's going to say, that's right. There's a time when you have to call those things that are not as though they were. That's what. Abraham did. It's in the book of Romans. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. So David has this turmoil going on in his soul because his one of his beloved children is after his kingdom and his life. And if you read the text, he is already embarrassed in an immoral way. Members of David's household on the roof of David's palace. I mean, this is bad. He is in turmoil. So what does he say? He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside the still waters. And see, that verse is um, a picture of a shepherd bringing sheep to a place of rest and comfort. You know, I hear people say sometimes, and I think it's more religion than spirituality or, or, or maturity. They say, well, God never promised uh, to make you happy. And I think that's got to be one of the stupidest things anybody could say about a kingdom which is characterized by righteousness, peace, and misery. I mean, righteousness, peace, and Joy, led by a Savior who had an anointing of the oil of gladness more than all of his companions. And see, it's a legit thing to ask the Lord to make you feel better. Why would he not want to? Why would he not want you to feel good about you, your situation, and him? See, a lot of negative, a lot of, of, of imitation Christianity is about negative, negativity and criticism. Anybody can be that way. Anybody can be that way. A friend of mine used to say, uh, it takes a wise master builder to build a, uh, an important structure, but any jackass can kick it down. Come on. I'm in the South. Jackass is legit. That's what my mother used to call me when she was mad at me (laughs) on several occasions. That was cussing to her, so she never cussed, so it's okay. But no, anybody can be negative. Anybody can be critical. And a lot of people, prophets, little p, question mark, are just people who are finding fault with stuff and are being negative. Or where are the people that can do something, change something, or know in advance what good things about to happen instead of scaring everybody half to death with what might happen? I had my arm up there. That's a... God wants you to be happy. Can I say that? God wants you to be happy. It may hurt getting there. I don't know. You know, some of that's up to us. But really, it's not his heart just to make people miserable. Verse 3, he restores my soul. There it is again. Another translation is, he fetches back my vitality. 
See, the restoration of your soul is for someone who has been exhausted mentally or physically. See, David is exhausted mentally or physically. So what does he say? I feel so bad, I don't know what I'm going to do. No, he says, my God restores my soul. See, he does warfare. You don't want to be in denial. You don't want to act like you're not miserable. You don't want to say you're not miserable. But what you want to do, once you've already admitted it, and you're not in denial about your condition, you've got to get off of that and, and hook into a proclamation that links you into a new experience. He restores my soul. Rest and comfort is what that's about. To your mind, to your emotions, and even to your will. And when I say will, I'm talking about your desire. God can so touch you that you start wanting things in a good way you didn't used to want. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What that's talking about is he has in his heart to guide us into good ways, not just being holy and being right, but into ways of wisdom, into ways of life, uh, into ways that can make a difference to us and our family and those around us. And then it says it's because of his namesake, which is an interesting uh, little um, phrase there. What it means is God will restore your soul and lead you into ways of life that are great for you and great for your family and great for your friends and great for your community because that's the way he is. See, if he's doing it for his namesake, it means his, his name is an expression of who he really is. And he's not doing it to guard his reputation. That's a negative way of looking at that. No, he's doing it because his reputation is real. He is who he says he is. He can do what he says he can do. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. How many of that little phrase make you a little nervous? Well, I've got good news for you. The word death's not actually there. But I have bad news for you. That valley of the shadow is, means a very, very, very dark place. So what's David saying? He says, even though I walk through a valley. How many of you know as Christians, Christian life have, have um, in your Christian life, you will have mountaintop experiences. Well, you're going to have some valley experiences too. I I wish that weren't so, but if wishes were horses, beggars could ride. Doesn't matter what you want to be so, that's not what you deal with. You deal with what is so, right? And so part of my job is to tell you, prepare you, help you to see your way through some uh, times of darkness, And so the writer, think about what David was walking through. My goodness, it's almost hard to imagine. Who in this room, and don't raise your hand please, it might scare me, but who in this room have actually had people pursuing you, wanting you dead? Not Billy Bob said something ugly about you in the third grade. But they want you dead. In that valley, David says, hey, it may be dark. I got somebody to walk with. How many of you had dark days as believers? Yeah. I love people who've had their brains beat out as Christians and they pop back up again and they love God. I just love that. Those, to me, are the true heroes. Some of them you may know. They don't make TV. They probably don't write a great book. But I have some friends that have no logical, logical reason for still being devout believers because of uh, the drunk driver that 
killed a friend of mine's wife, an unborn child, or, you know, the list goes on. But see, in some ways, there's a greater testimony than you got what you're after. It's that you didn't get what you're after, but you've decided not to fault God. You've decided to worship Him, whether He works this thing out or not. We need more people like that. I don't want to be one of them. That's <laughs> being honest, right? In other words, I'm not volunteering for calamity, but if calamity comes, I want to handle it right. You know what I'm saying? I'm not volunteering. Hey, who wants something terrible to happen and see how good you're doing God? I'm, I'm, uh, hey, I'm good. <laughs> but David could say in this dark day, yea, though I walk through the valley of the darkness of shadows, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I've heard uh, Bill Johnson talks about his father died of a sickness that other people in Bill's church had been getting healed of. And Bill's response was, I mean, it was a challenge. He loved his dad. His dad should have had years left. He was like one of his chief you know, advisors and ministry. But one of the things Bill said was, this is maybe the biggest time this side of heaven that I will be able to offer God praise for something I don't like or don't understand. Because once this is over, once we're in heaven, anybody, listen, you probably praise the Lord whether you want to or not when you're in heaven because you're going to get struck with so much glory, it'll just run through you. And see, there's something about people that will praise the Lord anyway. And sometimes that's the key to your breakthrough. Sometimes there's something in you the Lord wants to change. I'm not saying he sends those problems, but I'm saying those problems indicate the weakness, right? Pressure indicates the weaknesses. He doesn't bring these pressures. He doesn't make people sick. But you can discover in the worst of situations something that will benefit you if you know how to look at it. And why go through anything you do not get personal benefit from? A friend of mine says, don't don't waste your heartaches. Get maximum benefit out of the misery. Learn the lesson. I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I mentioned earlier, death's not in the original language there. But the meaning of that phrase is, though I walk through a valley of total darkness. And that's a picture of dark and bitter experiences we may have in life. But there's a, there's a possibility, there's a potential for a continual presence of the Lord. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our life in God was so legit and so real and so practical and so functional that no matter what we went through, we did not lose the sense of God's favor, God's kindness, and God's smile on our lives. Verse 5, You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. I'm going to skip that because I'm going to do a whole Sunday on that verse. And if uh, you're not here when I do, you'll hear about it. Let me just promise you that. If I have my way, you'll hear about it. It will get wonderfully ugly. Anyway. Verse 6. Surely... Somebody say, surely, surely. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word follow there means pursuit. Absalom was following David. Absalom was pursuing David. What was David's proclamation? 
goodness and mercy are pursuing me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I like verse 5. I should have said more about it, but I didn't. I'm going to do a lot with it later. But the whole idea of preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies is so wonderful. You know, the Lord will cause your enemies to see your blessing before it's all said and done. I like that about the Lord. Sometimes the Lord chooses sides. You just need to be chooseworthy. I hate being on the wrong side of the Lord's choice. How about you? It can happen. But nevertheless, those were David's proclamations. Now, um, do we uh, do we have that Psalm 27 as that next slide? Is that up on the... Let's read this. Stand up one more time. Let's just read this together because this is going to sort of sum up almost everything I've been saying this morning. I would have lost heart. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Yeah, you can sit, sit back down one more time. I gave you a break. Now, once again, understanding the context, David had experienced with people hating him so much they wanted him to die. When Samuel the prophet had chosen David to be king, David had probably a 15-year period where there was another king that was sitting on the throne that David had been called to. Uh, his name was Saul, and he hated David, and he tried on three attempts to kill him. And David spent a number of years roaming from city to city with Saul trying to kill him. This was probably 30 years it was 25 years before this situation that brought on Psalm 23. And so David in his youth, you know, as a younger man, is dealing with uh, Saul's hatred. And he's living in caves. One of them was called the Cave of Adullam. And he's... Uh, got 400 people with him that he's trying to keep alive. And another situation emerges where uh, their city's burnt down. And uh, their wives and children were there. And the raiders took their wives and children. And David's followers said, I think we just kill you, David. And so, I mean, he's dealt with all of these things. In Psalm 27 here, 13 and 14, David said, I would have lost heart unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And see, losing heart is another definition of giving up hope. David basically said, I would have become hopeless unless I believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And that word goodness is, comes up again in Psalm 23. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me. And so there's an order there. The order is, you will ultimately see or obtain in God whatever it is you really believe he has for you. See, David set the order. He said, I would have lost my hope unless I had seen God's goodness come. No, he doesn't say that. He said, I would have lost my hope if I had not believed I would see the goodness of the Lord. And see that, once again, I say this sets the order. You, you need, you, I was thinking about hope the other day. Um, God doesn't offer hope to people who have hope. 
is for hopeless people. How do you secure your hope? How do you, um, how do you increase your hope? It's a directly connected to your belief structure. It's directly connected to your belief structure. Now, every, everybody has times of doubt. I mean, I think we give Thomas, you know, they call him Doubting Thomas. Um, Doubting Thomas was the one at one point in the New Testament who, when he thought Jesus was going to die if he went to the next town, went with him. So, I mean, you have to... Everybody can have these moments of doubt. And sometimes doubt is just frustration. Sometimes... Uh, doubt is a reaction to disappointment. And so you can actually begin to see doubt as an alarm clock, an indicator that you're not looking at life right. See, there's never anything that goes on in your life that you can't benefit from if you know how to look at it. Even when you doubt God, it can indicate to you that you're not seeing clearly. That there, there are conclusions you've drawn that are inaccurate. Because one of the baseline understandings of the spiritual life is when you are believing the truth, you are filled with joy and peace. And so they're indicators. And so to be hopeless is to begin to understand you are wrong about something so significant it has brought you into that place of despair. And you have to humble yourself. You have to look at what you think and begin to conclude that you have to be wrong. And I would rather be wrong and happy than right and miserable any day of the week. Actually, that's what it is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be found wrong and become happy because you realize it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, every real believer uh, needs to understand it's a much better thing to lose the argument and win your joy. Oh man, there's so much in that. I had a situation last week at work where money and jobs. And the guy was upset with me. He shouldn't have been, but he was. What did I do? I said, I am so sorry I offended you. Now see, or you could say, I'm so sorry you were offended, but you're still just, you know, you're just an idiot. No, take personal responsibility. What if you didn't do anything wrong? What difference does it make? I'd rather save a friend than be right and lose a friend. Come on. I'd, I'd rather be wrong and happy than right and miserable. I mean, that's just a very smart way to look at life. And see, sometimes other people can't see where they're... It's, it's, the, it's the log in your eye and the speck in theirs. Sometimes people can't see where they're wrong until you humble yourself enough to humiliate them into a new perspective. Okay. Now, you could check with my wife and kids. I'm not always that way. But I'm saying there's something real about that. I would have lost heart. I've learned over the years when I wake up in the morning miserable or upset or angry that I'm wrong about something and I'm going to ask the Lord to help me see it. Because it's really not about other people. Other people can't betray you unless you're betrayable. What do I mean? Other people can't, you can't ever be, um, you can never be a victim unless you see yourself as a victim. Seeing yourself as a victim is placing responsibility on other people to make you feel like somebody. It doesn't work. It'll never work. It always backfires. These are deep lessons we all need to learn to be happy. Not that I place a high value on being happy. 
But David said this. He saw the order. I believe to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's what secured my heart until that goodness showed up. And so he had these proclamations. In the midst of trouble and turmoil and contradiction, he said, the Lord's my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down. It means he lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He fetches back my vitality. He restores my soul. He leads me in really good ways. Because that's the way he is. Yea, though I walk through the valley of deep darkness, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then the metaphor changes from shepherd into a host. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over, and those two pictures are about unbridled strength and unbridled joy. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Who can say amen to that? Amen. There's a lot to think about, huh? I was just thinking about this. Is um, We tend to think of ourselves in the context of the way things are, right? Even um, thinking about what we have, you know, talks about you will not want, you know. Think about what we have. Even what we have is still, um, uh, is the word psychological? It's what you actually own and what you feel like you own. You know, so I have this amount of money. Well, it's in a bank account somewhere, right? But you don't have it in your hands right now. I have a house. I have a car. You have a car. It's yours. Legally, it's yours. But if someone takes it, then you don't have it anymore, do you? You only feel like you have it because you have been given some sort of control over it. Does that make sense? Is the truth is we don't really have anything. We don't really control anything. We Things pass through us and we touch things and we have control over circumstances for a temporary period of time but we don't actually own anything but in our hearts and our bodies and in our mind we set ourselves on those things as though we have those and a lot of times we allow those things to determine who we are right and the truth is those things aren't real anyway am i making sense here those things aren't real anyway we just think they're real right like this is mine because I'm going to have it. But if you take it from me, it's not mine anymore, right? Because I had it and I had control of it for a second. But we think we have these things. Okay, maybe think of it this way. If, if, if you had the lottery ticket, right? If I played a trick on you and I gave you this lottery ticket that had fake numbers and you thought you won, you would be very happy, right? Until you got home and learned that it was not real. But whether it's real or not, that wouldn't change how you felt on your way home, would it? You would still feel the same way on your way home, even though it wasn't real. Now, you'd be really, really mad when you found out it wasn't real, but that wouldn't change how you felt or who you were when you thought it was real. I guess what I'm saying is too often our externals weigh on who we are as a person. Well, the truth is the fact that you were able to experience that joy on your way home was not really because of what was real. It was only because the joy was in you in the first place. And when you thought you had something you didn't have, you entered into joy that was already there. But the money didn't give you joy. And even if it was real, the money wouldn't have given you joy. The joy came from somewhere else. You just tricked yourself into allowing that joy to manifest in your life. Right? Here's the truth. And this is the truth. This is not a trick. Here is the truth. Your circumstance has no bearing on who you are as a person, on how God feels about you, or the levels of deep joy you can experience at any moment in your life. Your externals 
mean relatively nothing. The only problem is we are so connected to them and we are so given to them. And I mean, we are. You are and we are and we come less and less. In the end, we're not going to be. But we are. But I guess here's the point is that we don't, I don't think we always realize how connected we are to externals, how often we look to other things, other people, to determine our joy. When, when it says here that we want for nothing, when it says that God has given us all these things, that's not something we trick ourselves into believing. It's actually true because the joy and the goodness that you want from all these things is actually already within you right now and it has been since you were born. And to enter into that and to, to um, be filled with the Holy Spirit is for that thing in you to be reactivated to where you don't require that the world work the way you want it to work to experience the fullness of who you are as a person and the fullness of God within you. So all this is not just psychological. It actually is literal and is actually real and is available right now. And when I figure out how to make that work, I'll let you know. (laughs) Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. And thank you for all you've given us. And thank you for all we possess. Even in this moment. Even in this moment. Everything. We all have things we don't like about life. We all have things we don't like about life. We all have things that tempt us to lose the joy that you have already given us, Lord Jesus, and we're sorry, and you know we're weak, Lord Jesus. You don't expect better of us, Lord, but we do give you permission to teach us and train us and to draw us and show us not where we ought to be. Show us where we actually are. Show us the joy and the goodness, the peace, patience, kindness, all the fruit of the Spirit that exists right now within us, Lord Jesus. Show us how to manifest and allow that fruit to come forth in a way um, that you know it can, Lord Jesus. And show us who we really are and show us who you really are and show us who you really are within us, Lord Jesus. And change the way we think and change the way we look at the world and teach us how to experience the joy that is within us right now in Jesus' name. Amen.